Our brother, Jim Horton, is going to deliver us the words of exhortation tonight. His subject is a special land, a special people. In the reading that we just had from the 11th chapter of Deuteronomy, if you note it carefully, Moses, in speaking to the children of Israel just before they were about to cross over the Jordan River just north of the Dead Sea in the area of Jericho to go into the land promised unto their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and sworn by God that he would give it to their their children and their descendants. Um, Moses says, I'm not speaking to your children. And he was talking about the third generation out of those who came out of Egypt 40 years, actually 38 years earlier, because it was 38 years till they got to this place from leaving Kadesh Barnea. And the original parental adult community that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness by divine fiat because of their disobedience and their stiff-neckedness and their rebelliousness and their constant lack of faith. Despite the fact that they said, all that you command we will do, and they repeated that many times, they constantly were stiff-necked and rebellious. So the grandparents of the young people who were with Moses, who were born of the children, who were allowed to continue that wilderness journey, all those under 20 years of age, and it was a 40-year journey, virtually, um, their children had not known experientially any of the great miracles that God had done from the miracles that he performed upon Pharaoh and the land of Egypt to bring about the exodus of his people from the land of Goshen, that he might bring them into the land of promise, They had no knowledge of that, nor did the children have any knowledge, experientially, personally, of those things that happened at Sinai and subsequently or during the the, um, 40-year sojourn before they entered the land of Canaan. But their parents, the children of those who died in the wilderness, did see those things. And thus he speaks to them and not to the children. But incumbent upon those parents to their young people was that they absolutely had to commit to teach consistently from generation to generation the story of God's great and mighty arm in bringing his people out of Egypt into the land that he had sworn unto their fathers to give them. And that is a consistent and repetitive message that Moses delivers to that generation as they are about to go across the Jordan River. 
Tonight what we hope to do is take a look initially at some overheads, and then, because I'm a grandparent and one of those old people, um, I've already had a few shots about this old technology I have here. I've got an actual 35mm slide projector. <laughs> that won't mean anything to a lot of the young people here, but um, there just wasn't time for me to learn how to put this into a PowerPoint presentation. So I, I, some weeks back I just gave up on that hope and said I'll just bring the projector and hope the bulb doesn't blow. I actually brought a second one in case it does. So what we hope to do is look at some overhead slides and then do a very quick um, trip through parts of the land of Israel. And this is an old trip. I'm, I had occasion to have to show these slides at, at our ecclesia. And I said that I had to go back and, and uh, dig these slides out of deep storage because they were taken in 1970 when I was in Israel on a trip. Uh, so they are, you figure the math, they're, um, they're almost old enough to be antiques. Um, but, and they're, they're somewhat dirty and scuffed up, but I think at least they will give you some, if you've never had the blessing of being in the land of Israel, some first-hand impression of seeing this land of which we read in the 11th chapter. Um, the title is A Special Land, A Special People, and we really would have put a conjunction in the middle for a special people. We already read from this 12th chapter that this, in the 12th verse, it's from the 11th chapter, that this is a land which the Lord thy God careth for thee for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year unto the end of the year. And that whole phrase, the eyes of the Lord, if we follow it through scripture, is really indicative of the Elohim, the angels, who are his ministering spirits to carry out his work. Right next, in the 12th chapter, verses 11 and 12, Moses tells them about the fact there will be a special place, and it's prophetic of the promise that Jerusalem would become the center of worship and the center of, of the entire way of life for this nation that was about to be established in this land. So it's clear from the scriptures that this land has an absolute critical importance in the eyes of the almighty creator of heaven and earth. In Deuteronomy 14, verse 2, speaking of the children of Israel, he says, Thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, and the Lord has chosen thee to be a peculiar people unto himself above all the nations of the earth. That same message is given in the seventh chapter at verse six, where we read, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all the people that are upon the face of the earth. And that phrase of peculiar people carries with it the connotation of a selected special people through whom he is prepared to work the, the great work of salvation, to save out of the sick and dying creation some who would associate themselves with his name and the name of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and come into the way of salvation, that they might become a new people to live for him eternally. So that's sort of the quick context. Now, before we look at any of the slides, I'd like to just uh, read from the eighth chapter. There was on the overhead, this overhead here, a reference to Deuteronomy 8, where he also talks about the land. So I'm going to read these verses very quickly from Deuteronomy 8. Then I'm going to read just a few verses taken out of the middle of the 11th chapter that was already read for us by James. And they all describe this land. And we want to talk about this land. We want to talk about the geography of the land. We want to talk about the climate of the land. We want to talk about the geology and the vegetation of the land. And see if there isn't some message in what happened to Israel those thousands of years ago for us here at this point in time in the year 2009. Okay, Deuteronomy 8, reading very quickly verses 5 to 9. God says to them through Moses, Consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore, Thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. And it's a statement that God will correct us. He says, For the Lord thy God bringeth thee into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and depths that spring out of the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive, and honey. A land, he says, wherein thou shalt eat bread without scarceness. Thou shalt not lack anything in it. A land whose stones are iron, and out of those hills thou mayest dig brass or copper. That's what he described to them in chapter 8. And again, this description is given to them as they are on the west side of the Jordan River in the plains of Moab, across from the Dead Sea, just north of the Dead Sea, and we'll see a slide of that area a little later on. So, continuing, verse 9 of Deuteronomy 11, just these five or six selected verses. It's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. A land that floweth with milk and honey. Verse 9, that's what the last phrase of the verse says. He goes on to say, For the land whither thou goest in to possess is not, it's not at all like the land of Egypt from whence you came out, where thou sowest thy seed and waterest with thy, it with thy foot as a garden of herbs. In contrast, he says, But the land whither ye go to possess it is a land of hills and valleys, and drinketh water of the rain of heaven. A land which the Lord thy God careth for, looks after, seeks and looks after, is the sense of that word translated careth for. The eyes of the Lord thy God are always upon it from the beginning of the year, even unto the end of the year. The next verse talks about the conditions of needing to love God and be obedient. And to give him 
our due service. He says in verse 14, I will give you the rain of your land in his season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and wine and thine oil, and I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. I don't know whether you picked up on this or not, but I want to put an exclamation point behind this because it captures an image I want you to carry through to the end of this evening. God says, in talking about, if in response to receiving this land of abundance and blessing, which is totally different from their experience in Egypt, and we'll talk about that as soon as we look at the slides, if they will respond by teaching their children and talk about them in their house and when they walk in the way and when they lie down and when they rise up, if that is just part of the fabric of their family life, that hearing of the commandments and the expectations of their God, that that was shared with their children, then he says, if they do that, in verse 21, the consequence would be that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them. And this is what I want you to hang on to, this next phrase, because it is just so replete with profound meaning, both for them, for us, and for the future, and for the day when God finally is finished his work of taking out a people for his name. And it's this phrase, their days, if they obeyed God and were committed to him in obedience in this land of promise, would be as the days of heaven on earth. Would be as the days of heaven on earth. And right away, that should just engender all kinds of thoughts about the implications of the days of heaven on earth. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Having said that, I'd like to take just a few moments and talk about this phrase, a land flowing with milk and honey. The phrase is really a Hebrew idiom. It's not literally flowing with milk and honey in the ditches and in the ponds and the streams. It's an idiom to carry with it the image of enormous blessing and prosperity. And it occurs some 18 times. 13 of those times are in the book of Deuteronomy as Moses exhorts and teaches and prepares the children of Israel in those last two years as they are in the plains of Moab as they're getting ready to go across the Jordan River. 
And he knows, of course, that he can't go with them. But he's at pains to tell them about this imagery of a land flowing with milk and honey. And, and this may take a little more time than I want, but I think it's important because it's really the underpinning of what lay ahead for Israel if they were obedient and indeed what lays ahead for any of the children of God if they are obedient and they are blessed to be on this earth when it is as the days of heaven upon this earth. So let's very quickly, and I'm just going to zip through this. You, don't, you won't have time to look at it. I'm just going to give you the reference and part of the, the context of these 18 citations. 13 are in Deuteronomy. The other five, so that's 13 of them in the Pentateuch. The other five are in one in two in Joshua, two in Jeremiah, and one in Ezekiel. So let's just listen to this about the land of milk and honey, because there's, if you listen carefully, there are some some uh, attendant phrases that repeat, not in every one of them, but they are important phrases. Okay, in Exodus three verse eight. God promised looking upon Israel and seeing their sorrows and identifying with their afflictions in the iron furnace of Egypt. He says, I know their sorrows in verse 8. And his intent is to bring them up, I'm quoting now, out of the land of Egypt unto a good land, a large land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and a land of the place of the nations. Exodus 13.5 speaks of which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee a land flowing with milk and honey. And that's the first one where we see this is part of the fact that God has made an irrevocable oath to the fathers of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to do this. And he won't be thwarted in it. Despite the rebelliousness of those in the wilderness. Exodus 33.3 I will send an angel before thee and drive out the, those who are before thee. This is when God said he wouldn't be with them and go with them initially. And then we know that that changed. He says, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And he said, I won't, at that point in Exodus 33, I won't go with you in the midst because you're rebellious and I might destroy you. Leviticus 20.24 but I have said unto you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it unto you to possess it, a land that floweth with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, which have separated you from other people. And he goes on to talk about that carries with it a price. And the price is that as he is holy and separate, so must those who would follow him be holy and separate. In Numbers 13, the report of the spies to Moses as they told him uh, uh, the, re the message of what they had found and what they brought back with them. And we know they brought back grapes on a rack or a great stake with so heavy pomegranates and figs. And they told him and said, We came unto the land whither thou sendest us, and surely it floweth with milk and honey. And this is the fruit of it. And they presented those things they brought back. In the 14th chapter... Caleb and Joshua's counsel that they should immediately be prepared to go into the lands. They said, the land which we passed through to search is an exceeding good land. 
If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. You know what the congregation's response to that was in their fear and their lack of faith was they were about to stone him and, and Joshua and Caleb. That reminds you of both what happened to, to Jesus and uh, those who heard the Apostle Paul later. Number 16, 13 and 14. That was brought us up out of the land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness. This is the complaint of those who did not want to go into the land, who were unfaithful, who felt that they couldn't face the giants and did not have trust in the arm of the Lord. They say, you brought us out of Egypt, and they're styling Egypt as a land flowing with milk and honey. He says, moreover, thou hast brought us into the land that floweth with milk and honey. Thou hasn't brought us into this land that floweth with milk and honey, or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. How Moses ever dealt with these people with such patience is beyond me. Deuteronomy 6.3 The Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee increase in prosperity. And he says it will take place in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 11.9 We've already read this. The Lord swear unto your fathers to give them and to their seed a land that floweth with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 26.9.15 He brought us into the this place and has given us this land, even a land that floweth with milk and honey. Deuteronomy 27, the, well, I'm going to skip that. Um, we'll come back to that. Um, Deuteronomy 31 and 20. For when I shall have brought them into the land which I swear unto the fathers that floweth with milk and honey, and they shall have been eaten and filled themselves and wax and fat, then they will turn unto other gods and serve them and provoke me and break my covenant. That was God prophesying through Moses what would happen. He's recounting this to Moses. Joshua 5.6 In encouraging people to go into the land, he says, The land which the Lord swear unto their fathers. They're continually we're getting this repetition that this is a land of promise that has been confirmed by an oath. A land that floweth with milk and honey. And of this, in Jeremiah, God speaking of this, that he would be their God. You will be my people and I will be your God, that I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers. And listen to this language here now. He wants to perform the oath that he swore unto their fathers to give them... The fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. And implicit in the promises of the multitudinous seed and the blessings that would come from it is this imagery of milk and honey. We have no account that God used that phrase with Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. But Jeremiah tells us that this, as God is speaking here, that indeed he did make that promise to them and to the children. Jeremiah 32, verse 22, God speaking again, has given them this land which thou didst swear to their fathers to give them, a land flowing with milk and honey. Finally, in Ezekiel 20, verse 6, the day that I lifted up my hand unto them to bring them out of the land of Egypt into the land that I, and this is God speaking, that I espied for them flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all the lands. He says, I lifted up my hand unto them in the wilderness, 
and would not bring them into the land. This was the generation that was disobedient, which I had given to them. It was it was a given thing. There was absolutely no question they would get this land if they'd been obedient. And again, he says it's a land flowing with milk and honey, and it's the glory of all the land. Well, the imagery of a land flowing with milk and honey is one that we still look for. You know, we know the prophecy is that the land of Israel will, will blossom as a rose, and that the day will come as Amos prophesies when it will be of such abundance that the plowman will overtake the reaper and the sower, and it will be just a, in the latter part, the last closing verses of Amos' prophecy, uh, a land of such incredible abundance. It has been, in some measure, a land of milk and honey. But the curses which God said he would bring upon the land, and they are there in the uh, closing chapters of Deuteronomy, he would bless it and make it provide incredible amounts of food and abundance if they are obedient, if they were disobedient. He says, the sky will be as brass and the fields will be as iron and dust shall come down as your rain and it would be desolate. What we will see in some of these slides is in fact still some evidence of that cursing of the land. We look for the day when it will be as, as the days of heaven upon earth and will truly be a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, having said that as a preface, what we want to do here, just very briefly, is point out on this, and I hope. You can see that. A couple of things with respect to the land. You look at this overhead, you'll see the Jordan Valley and this great cleavage up in here through Lebanon. This is part of a great down-faulted part of the Earth's crust. This section over here, which becomes the mountains of Judea and Samaria, and then the highlands up here in, in uh, Galilee, and this section over here where we have the highlands of Moab and Edom and Ammon, and this is really the Transjordan area where again we have highlands. These areas are some 3,000 plus feet above sea level over here. It gets even up to about eight or nine, get up to way up in here on this side. Um, you get up to... Uh, Mount Hermon, you're over almost 10,000 feet above sea level. But this down dropped, down faulted part of the earth where the crust actually split along these lines and this whole center section sank down is, in this case, 1,300 feet below sea level here at the Dead Sea and about 700 feet below sea level approximately in the Sea of Galilee. So that's a sort of a dominant feature of the land, that we have highland spine of mountains running up here, running up here, 
and this great trough that is well below sea level for the Jordan River down here. To the west out here, we have basically foothill country. Down here, it's called the Shephala, which means the lowlands of Judah. We want to talk about the Shephala when we look at a couple of slides. And finally, along this coastal plain, we have the flat coastal plain that was occupied by the Philistines. Well, we don't want to take a lot of time with this, but I do want to show you something about the structure of this downfaulted area. This slide here is, is one that I, at an earlier time, had to produce uh, for some work I was doing on the geography of this area. And the Jordan Rift is shown by the orange lines, which are fault lines there, the, the old escarpments where the land broke. And they run all the way up through here. A lot of uh, ancillary fault lines off to the side, even out here. And there's a big faulted, downfaulted area here. This is the mountains of Judea, Samaria, and then the Carmel Range, which goes over here to Mount Carmel. This is all uplifted land, and this valley here is the Valley of Jezreel. And the Valley of Jezreel is a, slot, a side transverse fault over here, and the front here of the highlands of Galilee, and all through the Galilee, are all these subsidiary fault lines. So the land is a land that has historically, geologically been broken up. It's not a flat land like the children of Israel knew in the land of Goshen, which was a delta, a flat delta of the Nile River. Okay, having said that, just a couple of things. With respect to the ocean currents. This is the Nile Delta here. This is the Mediterranean Sea here. The orange or yellow lines here represent the circulation of the Mediterranean currents here. And the red represents the prevailing westerly winds. And still in these latitudes, the winds that predominantly affect the climate come down the long axis of the Mediterranean from west to east. And here we have the Dead Sea, the Jordan Rift Valley, and the Highland area on this side and on this side. But all along this coastal plain, which we associate with Gaza, and historically in the Bible, the land of Philistines, we have an awful lot of sand that has come out of Central Africa and out of the East Africa Horn, uh, the land of Ethiopia, which came down the Nile River uh, was over the centuries deposited in the Mediterranean, carried by the currents along this smooth coastline. This is all infilled with sand. And then the winds have picked up that sand and blown it inland. The Shefala area we want to talk about a little later on is right in here between this and this. Okay.
Before we look at the slides, I just want to give you a quick impression of what we're going to look at. We're going to start and we're going to take four trips, each one of them starting in Jerusalem. And the first trip will take us up past Bethel, up past Shiloh to Shechem, and then across the Carmel Range and down into the Valley of Megiddo, the Valley of Armageddon, the Valley of Jezreel. And we'll stop at Megiddo, which was a major city of great importance biblically because it sat at one of the gateways through the Carmel Range. If you wanted to get north, you had to go through that narrow gateway, and Megiddo guarded it. So we'll look at Megiddo, then we'll carry on across the valley of Jezreel, and up across the scarp face of the south-facing part of the land of Galilee, and get up past, not far from where Nazareth is, and then come down off this highland to a point on the Sea of Galilee, about oh, over here, about nine o'clock. If you think of Galilee as a clock, maybe around between eight and nine o'clock, where Tiberius is. Then we'll take a trip across the Sea of Galilee up to about eleven o'clock, not quite twelve o'clock here, in the, the um, northwest to Capernaum. Then we'll come back down and look at the quiet water of the Sea of Galilee as it exits into the Jordan. The Sea of Galilee is kind of like an upside-down pear in terms of its, its outline. And it exits on the west side. It doesn't exit right from the most southerly point. The Jordan River begins in the Sea of Galilee somewhere, oh, maybe on the clock, just past 6 o'clock, not quite 7, uh, near Bethera. And it goes west and then turns south and goes down to the Dead Sea. So that will be one trip. The next trip we'll take will be from Jerusalem again down to Jericho. I failed to mention on the way back from Galilee, we will come along a bit of the Jordan, upper Jordan uh, down Falsehood Plain and look across here to Gilead and, and uh, Bashan. But then we'll come back to, to Jerusalem and take a trip down off the highlands of Judea into the area of Jericho. And then we will take another trip, a short trip from Jerusalem south down to Hebron and to Beersheba through this area that was part of the inheritance of Simeon. Finally, we'll come back from Jerusalem each time, we'll start there, and we'll take a trip across here to the Shephala, this area here. The Shephala is really dominated in Judea by four major valleys. You can see some of them here. And they provided the opportunity for the Philistines to infiltrate inward to the east and upward into the land of Judea. And that's where the conflict was, in that zone that was almost kind of like a no man's land between the Philistine uh, heartland over here on the coastal plain and the heartland of 
of Judea over here for the children of Israel, which was in the mountains. This area is almost kind of like a Piedmont for those people from Virginia. It's a, a transition area, it's a lowland area, and it has four major valleys dominated by major cities like Lakefish, Bastien, Gezer, um, and uh, in here, just about where I'm showing you here now, south of Beth Shemus, is the Valley of Elah. And we want to look at the Valley of Elah because something very important happened there, and it's probably the most well-known Old Testament story in the Bible. And then finally, after we've looked at that, we'll simply come over to the coast and take a look at the coastline up here from Ashkelon to Joppa to Caesarea to uh, up here to Mount Carmel to Haifa and finally what this coastline looks like just south of, of uh, Lebanon, north of Akko. And hopefully we can discover some things as we look at these slides that may be instructive of us as we wait here in this year, 2009, for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to establish on this earth the kingdom of God as the days of heaven upon earth. And hopefully we may be left with a few thoughts of instruction from the experience of the children of Israel those thousands of years ago when they were over here on the plains of Moab receiving the second reading of the law, the book of Deuteronomy, in preparation for their entry into the land under Joshua. So having said that, we will take this and shut that off. And If this turns out not to be dark enough, we could probably put these upper lights out, but let's see how we get along. I want to talk about something to do with Egypt first. You know, we read it wasn't going to be like this land of Egypt, this flat land of the, the floodplains of the Nile River and the delta of the Nile River, where there was no relief in the sense of change in elevation, very little. This is real flatlander country. Um, and I just want to direct your attention to this little map. These are really old slides. The rest of them aren't like this. <laughs> but these are from a film strip that was actually made in the, right after the Second World War about the Nile River in Egypt. The Nile River, this is part of Africa. Here's the Red Sea. This is all part of the fault line that uh, the Jordan River Valley Fault is. It goes down here, it cuts across East Africa, and goes right down to Central Africa through much of where the Nile sources are, Lake Tanganyika, Lake Livingston, and so on. Two sources to the Nile, the tropical source in the very south down here, and the sources in the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia on the high mountains here. Both these areas receive monsoon rain. 
The only thing I want to direct your attention to is that sustenance down here depended totally, for thousands of years, depended totally, and it still does, on the water that falls on Africa thousands of miles to the south. This is exotic water that is not rained upon in this area. Ask one here, this map, at least this, this uh, hydrograph over here shows the temperature line, and this is this little bit of brown there, if you can see it, represents the amount of rain it receives. It's a true desert. It receives less than half an inch of rain a year. Uh, there's a little bit more down here near the delta of Alexandria, but not a lot. It's still desert land. So the, the Egyptians used a system to water their land called basin irrigation. The Nile would flood over that flat land, and they would construct prior to the flood these basins. You can see them by these ridges. There's a bit of a upslope here. There's a berm, and then there are more ridges. They would divide. They would plow their fields up and create these berms, these low mud berms, to make a basin. Might be the size of this room. Might be the size of three of these rooms, or it might be the size of one quarter of this room. But they would create these basins during the time there was no flood. And then when the Nile flooded, they would trap the water that covered the whole land in behind these low berms. Now, I don't know whether you can see this breach in this berm. They were called berks. This breach right here where the water is flowing out of it. You know how he made that? Here's the fellow he's working here, an Egyptian peasant farmer. You know how he made that breach? In order to take the water from that little reservoir into another field where he planted the, the uh, seeds and the crop. He made it by kicking with his foot that breach up there to allow the water to flood from one basin to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, as it was needed. And thus, we read in Deuteronomy 11, it was not going to be in Israel, in the land of promise, like this land that was so flat and you watered it with your foot as a garden of herbs. And, and most of what they grew there, of course, they grew a lot of wheat and became the breadbasket for the Roman Empire, but they, they grew all kinds of things such as they lusted after. What a combination of things. Leeks and cucumbers and garlic. How could you lust after such stuff? But they had lived, they had lived in this kind of environment. And they had known that for hundreds of years. And the thing that they had known, and I'd ask you to think about this, because I want to come back to this at the conclusion. The Nile rarely ever did not flood. Occasionally it would not flood enough, but only rarely in history has it failed to flood. It was so regular you could set your clock, and the Egyptians had a date, I think it was the 17th of June, when they expected the first floodwaters to begin. And it would go on for several months till October when the flood was finished. And it came down gradually enough that they could fill those basins, 
And then during the winter time, when it was still sunny, when there was no rain, they would use that water to grow their crops. And it was a guaranteed annual income, except for rare occasions such as those seven lean years in Joseph's day. They had it made. There was no... It was a culture in which you just knew there was always going to be food. You didn't have to worry there wouldn't be water. We'll think about that a little later. Well, let's go on. This, this slide here simply shows you the floodplain of the Nile in the upper slide. And the dark part in the middle is the Nile water itself. But those dark rectangular slots on the right and the left represent basins with water in them. The light areas represent where the water has been drained out and they've seeded the land. And that was the way they grew their crops in Egypt. Okay. Mark, is there any chance we could remove those? I'm going to shut this off. We're going to start here at Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives looking towards the Temple Mount area. And the Kidron Valley is what's in front of us here. Just a quick comment. The Gihon Spring, which would be somewhere down in here, the upper Kidron, where they think the Garden of Gethsemane might have been, is up here. You see how, how this is full of olive trees. The Gihon Spring down here is an important source of water for Jerusalem. And one of the great experiences of God's grace for Egypt, for Israel, excuse me, in, in the time of Hezekiah was when there was a threat coming from uh, those coming from uh, the Syrians that they would... Uh, Sennacherib would, would take that water source and he laid siege to the city. And we know the record tells us quite explicitly in Chronicles, in Kings as well, that, that he had his engineers take the Gihon Spring, and it was typically a land of springs in the valleys, and the Gihon Spring was, was re-diverted under the city and it was re-diverted some 1,700 feet, almost 1,800 feet, in a great sinuous S-curve down to the Pool of Siloam, some 35, 40 feet lower in elevation, farther down, but inside the city wall. And the account of how that was done with, with uh, the miners working from each end and meeting in the center is truly one of the great miracles. And it's uh, one of the things that's well established in terms of, of the uh, archaeological record. Well, this is the prosperity where you have water in the valley. Date palms, cork, and also olive trees. There's an old olive tree here in what they think is the Garden of the Senate. But if you get out of those valleys and you start going north across the Judean mountains, mind you, this is 40 years ago, there's been some reforestation. This is West Bank territory just a few years after the Six-Day War, about two and a half, three years at the most. It was February of 1970. 
this is typical West Bank territory in the Judean uplands, starting to go north towards Samaria. And these, these terraces are partly man-made, certainly on this slope, this slope here, but a lot of this is just the bedding of the horizontal bedding of the limestone. And it's a very arid, dry area. There's some reforestation there, but not a lot. A little further north, in the valley not far from, from Shiloh, was this lovely scene early in the morning as we were going up to Samaria, of the almond trees in bud. The valley is wet here because there are springs and brooks in this valley. Uh, there's a city over here on a hill, typical of Bible lands, and the uplands are here in the mist in the background. Most of those valleys are there because the rock is much softer. It's chalk, very soft and easily eroded uh, form of limestone. But you get back out of that valley, and this is what you see. This is typical of what you would see. Now, I need to just turn this light on again for a moment. And I want to read you something about this land in Bible times. From Ezekiel 20, 28, a historical recounting by God, as he says to Ezekiel, we know Ezekiel now is, you know, by the river Kibar, he's in captivity. For when I had brought them into the land, speaking of the children of Israel, for which I lifted up my hand to give it to them, then they saw every high hill and all the thick trees. And sadly, the message goes on, they offered there their sacrifices and the provocation of their offerings, their, their idolatry. The phrase, all the thick trees. In 1 Kings 10, verse 27, speaking of Solomon's glory and his kingdom, it says the king made silver to be in Jerusalem as stones. It was so so abundant. But there was something else that was in great abundance. And cedars made he to be as the sycamore trees that are in the Shephala, or the Vale, in the lowlands. The valley of Elah, Elah means an oak tree, a species of oak tree, a tebarinth tree. And what we're having here is just an incidental um, undesigned coincidence, as it were, in the account of Solomon and his riches, that there were trees in that Shephala area in great abundance. The point we want to make is that this land that you see here is still a land under the curse that came from the disobedience. The people from Virginia will recognize this as a picture from the Skyline Drive of the Shenandoah Valley. Now, I'm not going to suggest for a minute that the vegetation in the land of Israel was ever like this, because it's a totally different climate, 
and a totally different regime in terms of rainfall and, and uh, the whole, this is a humid continental climate. We're talking about a Mediterranean climate in Israel. Very different. However, there is a point to be made. This land physically looks not unlike the Valley of Jezreel. And that kind of vegetation growth, not as thick and not with the same species, was probably more accurately what much of Judea and Samaria was like when the children of Israel entered that land. There are other indicators of that in the scriptures, but we don't have time to follow through on that. I'll just simply say the archaeologist Rabbi Nelson Glick, who was an American archaeologist and a rabbi as well, wrote a book called Rivers in the Desert, talking about in the southern part of Edom, where the Nabataeans had a thriving um, economy because there was a great deal more water available to them then in their time than there is now. The point is, we're looking, when we look back at a um, slide like, like this, we're looking at the ravages of both the curse that came upon it after the children of Israel were dispersed from the land and also what has happened under occupancy. The Roman Empire taxed your land and your trees. And a lot of people all over the western Mediterranean and the eastern Mediterranean cut down their trees because of the taxes. And that has led to widespread, almost irreparable um, erosion. And that, of course, has happened in the land of Israel as well. Well, let's go on. Very quickly, we come to Mount Ebal, where the, the curses were to be put on the mountain up at Shechem and to Mount Gerizim, where the blessings were to be placed. We go further north, and we start towards the uplifted part of the Carmel Range that sweeps across to the northwest now. And if we cross over that and start down in the Valley of Jezreel, we come to Megiddo. And the um, tell at Megiddo, the archaeological remains, show much of what was there during Solomon's time. I want to just show you this slide because it says so much about the importance of a land of springs of water. This are the steps that have been constructed in modern times down to the well that was the major source of water for this city. You weren't supposed to go down here beyond you know, the part that had been fenced off, but I'm afraid I did because I wanted to get this picture of some of the original steps here in the well at Megiddo. And you can see these are worn, and they would have been worn by the children of Israel as they occupied this area, going down into Megiddo and to the pre-Israelite occupants as well, into Megiddo to find water uh, to sustain that city. And that was so typical of the land. If you didn't have a spring of water, you wouldn't have a city. But look at the trees here. It's a much wetter area because we're going further north. There's more rain as you go further north. You get out of the desert south and much more rain to the north. And it's much higher land. Even this plain is higher. If we go across the valley of Jezreel, you see it's a very flat, abundant, rich area. And in the background are the hills that form the south face of Galilee. 
If we come across and go towards that, it looks like this. It's all under agriculture under the Israelis today. And we go past Mount Gilboa here, which is accurately determined. And you might see that quarry here. And think about the description, the land out of whose, whose you know, hills you would take iron and copper and, and various other minerals. And as you begin to climb up towards Nazareth um, on this great sweeping S-curve as you go up the mountains, you go past a big quarry here, and it's just an indicator of those descriptions that we read back in Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 11. This is Galilee farmland. This is going down slope towards Tiberias. At Tiberias, we got on this boat and took this trip across from Tiberias, leaving the harbor here and going up to the north, up to about 11 o'clock on the clock. Uh, this headland right here, you will see in the next slide, Capernaum's in here and this low, gently sloping amphitheater of land in behind it, you will see in just a moment. This is that headland that we saw, quite abrupt, because this is all fault scarp land, where the down dropped area is now under the sea, and this is the edge, and Capernaum's over here. So we get to Capernaum, and just in behind the city was this beautiful meadow with these lovely lilies of the field, and one couldn't help but think about the words of the master about not being over-anxious about things, Consider the lilies of the field, how they toil not, neither do they spin. Yet I say unto you, even Solomon, all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. And it was an exhortation to trusting in God. And this is just one of the lovely, beautiful things that we experienced. This is just at the outlet of the Sea of Galilee, looking back to, actually we're looking east here to, to the Golan Heights. And this is the quiet, lovely exit of the Jordan river waters coming out of the Sea of Galilee and going into the beginning upper part of the Jordan River. Those were most beautiful parts of the land that we saw and certainly my favorite. But here the Jordan River begins its journey down to the Dead Sea where it will empty in with no outlet except to evaporate and leave the salts behind and the sea dead. Coming down the Jordan Rift Valley we're looking across at Bashan and Gilead here coming down the Jordan Plain. We come back to Jerusalem and start again. This trip is down off the Judean mountains into the Jordan Valley to the Dead Sea. And up here on the mountaintops where it's high enough to catch the rain coming off the Mediterranean, it's reasonably productive and lots of trees. This is only one quarter of the way down and already there's very little vegetation. Halfway down there's even less and you get down to the bottom and it's absolutely arid. This is right at the bottom of the trek from Jerusalem. And there's something of interest to note here. Notice this line of trees right across there, that line of green and the houses. That's a spring line, a land of springs in the valleys and in the hills. God described it as. Even here in the arid area, this is right next to Qumran, where the Essenes were, that uh, uh, community that lived under such um, severe circumstances here. 
and the caves of Qumran show up a little later on. If you turn it 180 degrees, look the other way across behind you, you would see the Dead Sea at 1,300 feet below sea level. And this is the shot that shows us the plains of Moab, where Israel received the reading of the second law, received Deuteronomy and all of that instruction to be obedient, then they would be blessed and basket in the store. This seems incongruous, old Jericho rest house and a sign for Pepsi-Cola. Uh, this is old Jericho. This is modern Jericho, and it's a city of palm trees. And the reason it is, is because of the springs that are there. They are more important than the Jordan River. Again, this oasis because of the springs. Looking back again at the area where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in the caves at Qumran. Without water, it's absolutely desolate. This is Jerusalem again, looking towards where um, the, uh, the engineering work I was telling you took place, drilling and carving underneath the, the land from two areas to connect the water source in Hezekiah's day to save the city. If you start off the Judean hills towards um, Hebron, this is what you see. There's still trees, but it's still this barren area. And down at Hebron, it's, it's reasonably uh, well watered, but it's still getting drier. You go south, and they, uh, in the Hebron area, have been using irrigation for the orange growth for decades now. Where that isn't possible, you see typical grazing as there would have been in the Patriarch's day. And even in the day of the children of Israel, you get further south into Simeon's territory and you're getting into the less rainfall area or semi-desert here. The white limestone shows up big time and the green begins to fade until you get into here and there's none at all down next to Beersheba. Well, if we come back to Jerusalem, to the Kidron Valley again, the upper Kidron, and we leave there, and we go now to the Shephala. This is the Valley of Elah. And here it is to the left. If you look at the boulder right here in this picture, you'll see that boulder right here in this picture. It just if a panoramic camera would have shown the whole thing, but we couldn't. There's a hill on the right, and if we go to the left, there's a hill on the left, and the Philistines were on the one hill, and Israel was on the other hill. And it was in this valley where David confronted Goliath. And I want to read you I want to read you something a rabbi has written about the Shephala. I said I wanted to sort of focus on this when we finish and I'll try to be finished in just a few minutes he says in each of the Shephala valleys prominent cities developed the Ajalon the northmost valley was guarded by Tel Gezer the Sorek and the Elah valleys were guarded by Bethshemeth and Aska respectively and to the south the city of Lachish stood over the Lachish valley these valleys and the strategic cities that overlooked them were the location of many Old Testament battles. In the Shephala, a godly culture and a pagan culture met. 
It was a no man's land. And whoever won control of the area was able to shape the culture of that region. Whoever won that battle was able to shape the culture of that region. It was an area where there was a battle between the culture of obedience to Yahweh and the culture of idolatry of the Philistines. These valleys allowed the Philistines to move readily up into them off the coastal plain. And it was where Israel had to defend itself. And it is where David, it's where David um, conquered Goliath. And I think we just lost the projector and maybe that's a good thing because we don't have a few, but a few slides left. The slides that we would have shown you would have shown after this simply going up the coast of the Mediterranean and seeing the difference from the south in Ashkelon near Gaza where it's very dry to the productive greenery up in the Mount Carmel area. Okay, having done that, I'd like to take just about three or four minutes to ask you to think about these things. And I want to pick up on what we just saw at the Shephala, that boundary between the things of God and the things of this world, the things of obedience and the things of disobedience, the things of faith and the things of the flesh. We don't live in Egypt, but I submit to you in North America, even under the present economic distress, we live on a continent that has a guaranteed annual income as the Israelites enjoyed in the land of Goshen. We live in a land that provides us with freedom and food and we live like kings compared to other generations. We may have to struggle a little bit but none of us are starving and Except for some truly cataclysmic events, it is unlikely that any of us are going to starve in this North American continent. The children of Israel were brought into a land deliberately by Yahweh that would require of them to depend on Him because there was no guaranteed income in that land. It was a land of springs and valleys. It was a land in which they would have the early and the latter rain, provided they were obedient. And he tells them absolutely clearly in Deuteronomy, if you're disobedient, you will not get that rain. You will get dust. And you will get aridity. And you will get other people coming in and taking you out of this land captive because you don't deserve it. And they didn't deserve it. There were some, of course, a community within the community that was always faithful. But as a nation, they failed of the grace of God. We are the greatest inheritors of the comforts of this life of the grace of God of any generation of believers that has ever lived. And my question of you is, is there a lesson here for us? 
Are we used to the materialism that we have and the comfort that we have, and do we assume it will always be there? Hopefully, by the grace of God, none of us will be in a position where we worry about if we're going to put food on the table. But as God required of Israel that they had to learn to depend on Him. The great principle, the just shall live by faith. There's no other option. You put your faith in God that He will look after you, even in dire times and difficulties. Israel failed to do that. And we know the result of it. They could have had the days of heaven on earth. And that's what we long for and look for. That's what we pray for every time we say, Thy kingdom come on earth. And thy will be done on earth as it is now done in heaven. I put this to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and young people. We need to count our blessings far more up front and constantly than we do. The thing that will allow us to endure no matter what may come upon us in these last days before the return of Christ will be, and I've said this before and some people heard it, they're going to get bored hearing it again, but it is true. The thing that will allow us to remain constant and faithful and courageous and not have to worry about the giants in the land will be a deeply embedded sense of gratitude in our hearts that becomes part and parcel of who and what we are. Without it, if we do not cultivate as part of our everyday being in the core of our being a sense of thankfulness and gratitude, we will never be motivated to grant unto God the best of whatever we can give Him. Young people, don't take the blessings of this life with all of the electronics and the going to and fro and all of the blessings of materialism that we have. Don't take those things for granted. If they were withdrawn from us, our obligation is just to know we're okay because God has said I will never leave thee nor forsake thee therefore we need not fear what man shall do unto us no matter what may transpire in the months possibly years ahead before the return of Christ if we can cultivate as part of our value system a deeply inherent buried sense of everyday thankfulness to God for all that he has given us, especially his word and the Lord Jesus Christ and his work of salvation, we will be able to sustain the kind of service he demanded and expected of the children of Israel. And we will inherit by his grace the days of heaven on this earth because he has sworn this earth will become a place flowing with milk and honey.